Gracious God, we call upon your spirit to fall afresh on us, to mold us and to shape us, to direct us and to gift us. So allow these words that come from Holy Scripture so to touch our hearts and lives that our life is different. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Our Old Testament lesson is from Isaiah 42. I invite you to take the Pew Bible out and turn with me to that passage of God's Word because in that particular passage, it seems like the Israeli people <clears throat> thought they could take care of business themselves and look to themselves for their own direction and for their own salvation. And yet the passage from Isaiah talks about something new, talks about someone new, talks about a servant that they can look to and find real meaning and real life. Listen now for God's word, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned in the announcements, what, uh, what a gift to be back with all of you. What a gift that you uh, would provide that space to have a sabbatical this summer. Uh, it has been a joy, something I very much look forward to sharing about in the Sunday school hours on September 15th and 22nd. And again, thank you, uh, congregants. Thank uh, especially our elders and deacons, our officers who really stepped forward as servant leaders in uh, these recent 14 weeks. Um, a hearty thanks to our staff, who, as you all know, did a remarkable job. Uh, I know Chris is, is here and, and Nelson, and, and they uh, were remarkable. Esther, I know, was, was a gift to you all, as so many of you have reflected back to me in just this past week. And, and Esther told me to, to check when I got up here. She said, now, Bobby, I would say uh, on a few occasions, you can fire me because I'm just here for a little bit, but, but I think we should all move forward. <laughs> In the pews, and 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 she's like, and, and and everyone would move forward, and it was lovely. And I think, you know, just see if they seem for you're forward. And uh, and anyway, I, I'm I'm grateful for her leadership and shepherding uh, this summer. Thank you too. I meant to mention announcements. Carson Ryan's here leading us in worship, and if you if you notice in the bulletin, he's actually going to lead a three week class on how to lead in worship as a lay leader and, and reading and, and doing different parts uh, from the lectern. And if that's of interest to you, I'd love to, you know, I think you're thinking, I'd love to learn from Carson about how to, to lead well in worship. Well, his class will be three weeks starting September 29th. I don't know if we were able to print that date yet in the bulletin. Um, but if you're interested, talk to me, talk to Carson. I think we've got two or three or four of you already saying, yeah, I'll be there. But let us know. We'd love for you to be a part of that. We're jumping into the Gospel of Matthew. As I'll explain in more detail next week on Discipleship Sunday, uh, we're actually going to be in Matthew a good bit this fall and even into the new year, as really we just take some time to walk alongside Jesus in this rich, 
gospel. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're, going to, we're not going to get to the, the first and second chapter about Jesus being born and all that until we, we hit Advent and Christmas. We'll get there then. We're going to start with Jesus' adult life, and that begins in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John of the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past week, we here at Grace Covenant, we hosted the GC Arts Camp for a group of children ages ranging 5 to 11. And again, another round of just huge thank yous. Nelson and Jess Reevely really led uh, the coordination on that, bringing together a host of, of just wonderful uh, teachers and volunteers and if you did not get to read about all the details, who was involved, what all unfolded, check out the grace notes that's published today for a little write-up about that as well as accompanying pictures. I had a small part in this camp. I was the official storyteller for the camp each day. And on day two, I told the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story where the younger son uh, asks his father for his inheritance and then he goes to a faraway country, country and he squanders all the inheritance money on, on wild living? Eventually a famine hits the land as the son then runs out of all of his money and he's starving. He's ashamed. He decides he'll go home and apologize. Maybe my father will, will let me return as a servant and then, then at least I could eat. And I decided to have the children act this part of the story out. I told the kids to, that they needed to pair up and then have uh, their pairs line up across from one another in the fellowship hall. And to this side, this line of kids, I said, you all are the younger son in the story. I want you to turn your bodies around this way, away from your partner across from you, and hang your head low like this. And in a little bit on my cue, you're going to start to turn toward your partner. Now I went to this side, the partner across from him, and I said, you all are the father in this story. When that younger son across from you, your partner starts to turn around, I want you to run and hug the younger son who's directly across from you. Now my original plan was to say, now, now you fathers here, look, I know you may not know the partner across from you. You may have met for the first time yesterday at camp. And so you can kind of run, walk, and side hug, or arm pat, or, you, you know. But I never actually said these words, because once I told all of those fathers their job was to give a big hug, their eyes lit up. I honestly could not have come up with a more exciting assignment. I walked back to the younger sons. Okay, y'all have made some bad decisions. You spent the family's money. You feel ashamed. You feel bad. But you're going to try to turn home. Go ahead. So with their heads hung low, they start to turn. 
And with no cue at all, the fathers just whoosh across the fellowship hall and they absolutely squeezed the smithereens out of those younger sons. And there was squealing and there was laughter. There was one pairing of pretty good friends where there was kind of more of a tackle. Um, everyone was fine. I kind of wanted eventually, though, to get going with the story, and that actually proved difficult because they seemed so happily content just swaying in this embrace. And it made me wonder, what is it about a genuine human embrace that is so powerful, so life-giving? What, what is it, uh, why do these kids readily light up with excitement about the idea of a huge generous hug. And as I knew I would be preaching on this passage this morning, I thought, and isn't it something that Jesus' very first words in the entire Gospel of Matthew, the very first words he speaks, insist upon his baptism, insists upon that gift of divine embrace of grace be made known to him. Scholars will tell you the Gospel of Matthew is written in the form of an ancient biography with Jesus as the protagonist. And in this genre of ancient biography, the first words that a protagonist speaks are critical. They're tone setting. They name the priority. They name the focus. They name something absolutely central. And so you recall this scene begins with John the Baptist trying to tell Jesus, uh, you have it backwards. I think you should baptize me, Jesus. And then Jesus speaks his first critical tone-setting words in the Gospel of Matthew. Let it be so now. Let it, the baptism, be so happen now. Before Jesus ever calls disciples, before Jesus delivers the famous Sermon on the Mount, before there are any healings or miracles or confronting the hypocrites or feeding the hungry, Jesus is insistent. First, that he know the gift of God's abundant favor and love. He insists upon the gift of baptism and that embrace as of first importance. Why? Fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He actually goes right on to explain, it is proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's maybe a confusing statement, but I think it helps to know that in the Gospel of Matthew, the word righteousness refers to the will of God. So the sense of Jesus' statement is, let this baptism happen to me so that I can fulfill the will of God, so that I can do the will of God. Let this baptism happen to me so that I am empowered to live the way God desires. And as we walk through Matthew in the coming weeks together, Jesus will make it clear in his teachings what is meant by the will of God. The will of God, it includes things like let your yes be yes and your no be no. Give to the needy. Forgive 70 times 7. Do not worry. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Some hard things, some courageous things, things, quite frankly, we know we need more of in this world and we ache to see more frequently in our lives. These are will of God things. And Jesus says, in order for him to do the will of God, he doesn't need an extra measure of willpower or an extra measure of resolve or an extra class on how to get it just right. Of all the things in the world, he claims that what he needs in order to do the will of God is the gift of baptism. 
And when Jesus is baptized in our story, it's abundant. You heard the heavens open as a declaration of wide, generous favor. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, the very power of God resting and filling Jesus. And then God speaks that wonderful word of favor. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The heavens, a dove, a voice, it's this threefold showering of favoring, of power, of grace. It's not unlike a running hug. And it's the central priority as Jesus steps to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Is grace our priority? As the body of Jesus Christ called to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, are we a people who are foremost sustained and filled and empowered by the running hug of grace? I mean, we may, we may very well have been baptized, but does the truth of our baptism fuel us? About a month ago, Michelle, Leo, and I were in Mexico, part of the sabbatical, and, and Michelle gets a phone call. We had recently set up a profile on an adoption website, letting the world know we're open to adopt a, a second child. And lo and behold, a young woman calls from Georgia. She's read our profile, would be interested in having us adopt her baby girl to be born in just a few days. As Michelle talks for 30 or so minutes with her on the phone, memories of Leo's adoption start to flood us. That couple reached out to us only a week or so before he was born. And, and, and the life circumstances between the two were not so different. We began scrambling on our computers, looking at our flights from Mexico to Atlanta, thinking about the possibility of returning from a sabbatical, not refreshed and renewed, exhausted, sleepless, with a second child. Amidst all kinds of coordinating with our adoption agency, one in Georgia actually, we took a moment to Google the first name of the woman, that's all we had, and her phone number we'd been using, and right away, we discovered an adoption forum full of hopeful parents talking about the same woman, the same name, the same story they'd been given. It turns out she's a scammer. She's a serial scammer. Now, we were duped for about a day. Other couples went on for weeks and even months believing this woman would be giving her child an adoption to them. And the thing that made no sense at all to me was that she never asked for money. She never asked for money from any of the families. Then what is this kind of cruelty all about? It was what the adoption agency personnel call emotional scamming. Outright lies, deception, manipulation to get attention. And she has it. Goodness, the BBC caught wind of her story, published an article just last week entitled The Fake Baby Instagram Adoption Scam. And I was struck by one of the lines from an adoption agency executive they interviewed. The executive has worked at her agency for four decades. And she said, look, long before the arrival of the internet, women pretending to be pregnant and going to place their baby for adoption would call for hour-long talking with your best friend conversations, and it never, ever had to do with money. Never. There are so many lonely people out in this world today that just want some attention. There are so many lonely people, so many people who ache for the genuine embrace that might open them, heal them, and transform them. And not having that embrace fuels the opposite of God's will. 
deceiving, manipulating, hurting, ironically in an attempt to secure something of an embrace. And it makes me wonder how many of the great pains of our society are not born of people who have no sense that they are beloved, regardless of what they have or have not done. How much violence and hate and slander and pain is born of people for whom the embrace of love is so distant or removed or avoided or non-existent. How many addictions are fueled by a profound sense of self-loathing or sense of unworthiness and since an embrace is not believable or apparent, you just got to numb it. When we see the opposite of God's will unfolding, we can be sure that there is a vacuum of grace. A space where grace is not the fueling priority. And we ourselves, we may not be emotional scammers, but I wonder how often we lie or deceive or hide or manipulate or posture or gossip or complain because there's a vacuum of grace. And ironically, we're trying all these anti-will-of-God ways to secure it. Is grace our priority? And if we sense that, that gift to be distant or muted or lacking, how might the church of Jesus Christ know afresh the full gift of that running hug that empowers us to step into the will of God? Day three at the GC Arts Camp, I'm the storyteller again. And about halfway through the story time, I ask a somewhat offhanded question that really just to keep things moving, make sure everyone's paying attention. I said, I mean, have you ever known someone... Uh, maybe at your school or your neighborhood, um, who's not always liked. Maybe they're a little different, or maybe they were a little mean, or maybe they don't fit in well. I was kind of just looking for head nods and hands so I could keep making my point. Instead, I got a couple urgent hands wanting to be called on right now. I know someone who was mean. And she starts to share about a specific classmate in a specific instance. And when this classmate did not share a very specific thing that she remembers quite well. And you can see the hurt on her face because children haven't learned yet how to hide. The next one shared about a friend who called this friend a really mean name. And he remembers the name and the time. More hands start to shoot up. I was standing at this point because my story I was telling involved a lot of motion. But it was at this point also that I realized I needed to sit. I needed to lean in and listen to whatever was unfolding. One after another, they just wanted a chance to share about a hurt, a pain, a meanness they know, known. Just wearing their souls on the sleeve. And I realized that though they would not have put it this way, what they were looking for in that moment was another hug. This time from me. And as they shared, each story implicitly asked, will you listen to our stories in a way that offers an embrace of love amidst this pain? Will grace run to us and hold us in this too? Will you hold a space of grace that ministers like the heavens opening unto Jesus? Or will this pain I offer find no grace and so become a festering wound or a hardened callus? 
how humbly and genuinely they offered their hearts. Theologian Dale Bruner says about Jesus' baptism, I consider this Jesus' first miracle. It's the miracle of humility. Jesus humbles himself to the reality of humanity, joins us in water submersion, and in humility knows the embrace of grace. And it is that truth that I think the children themselves intuited, that humility is often the primary conduit of a fresh expression of grace. Unless you become like one of these children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says later in Matthew, which is to say, unless you become like one of these children, you cannot know grace, because grace is the water and the air of the kingdom of God. How is God calling us this day to become children again? unto a fresh expression of grace? Do we risk wear your soul on your sleeve vulnerability about our failings and our hurts, about our dreams and our misgivings with God, with one another? Do we risk letting go of the masks, the pretense, the right to gossip and slander, our certain plans, our need to look like we have it all together? Do we risk an open humbleness before God and one another? And if another offers you their heart this day or this week, if another opens in vulnerability or pain or raw honesty, do we risk dropping our judgments and corrections and told you so's and hold a heaven-wide space to honor the ache? Tell me about the church who freely admits they're uncertain and fearful and pained and searching and don't have all the good answers about what it means to be faithful in these trying times. Tell me about the church that feels like they are children in a profound need of love and power and direction that is born not of their own power. And I will tell you about a church who is turning around and about to discover the prodigal God hugging them to smithereens, bathing them in the truth. This is my people, my beloved, and whom I am well pleased. Go and love as you have been loved. Amen.